3: And welcome to White Wine Question Time. How are you? Congratulations. We've made it through January. We're tiptoeing our way into February now. Feels good, doesn't it? And speaking of feel good, I cannot wait for you to get your ears around my guest this week. She's an actress, a writer, narrator, an activist who starred in Doctor Who... Afterlife, EastEnders. Yes, she was Chrissy Watts, who famously bludgeoned to death Dirty Den. She's been in Friday Night Dinner as Auntie Val, and most recently in Russell T Davis's achingly brilliant It's a Sin. With more than 600 radio plays to her credit and a CV that includes four years with the RSC, she came to public prominence playing opposite Kenneth Branner in Edmund at the National Theatre. In fact, she worked with Kenneth Branner again recently when he starred in one of the many plays she's written for Radio 4. This one's called That. Dinner of 67, which tells the story behind the making of Who's Coming to Dinner, a film that broke new ground, telling the story of interracial love, which originally starred Sydney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, and Catherine Hepburn. London born and bred, she still lives in the capital with her husband Rob and their teenage daughter Anushka, and in the last 18 months has been incredibly vocal, campaigning and speaking out against anti-semitism which you can hear more about on her brilliant podcast trolled which deals with trolling not only the trolling that she's received but includes guests like gary lineker for example coming on and sharing their own experiences of being trolled and standing up to online bullying i last saw her in uh, early december when we flew to ireland together to work just before tier four hit it felt like we were going off on our holidays we were giddy so let's dial her up. I can't wait to share an hour with you and her. It's Tracy Ann Obermann.
2: Oh my holiday, buddy. It's so lovely to see you, Kate. Because it was like a holiday, wasn't it? The only holiday we're ever gonna get. Not ever. I mean, it was incredible. Actually, I duty free, flew oh. to Belfast. We, we went to the airport together. It was just great. We had a coffee together. We we had dinner together. With Debbie McGee. With Debbie McGee at slightly socially distance, but it was like it was like COVID had never happened. <sighs>
3: and and then we came back and went into tier four and literally it's like we've been living under our beds again.
2: Yeah, it's the David Lynch, um, it's the next phase of the David Lynch dystopian film that we're in now. It's just gone even weirder.
3: You make me call in Ben's Eyes because you're in Friday Night Dinner, which is you know, it's literally Auntie Belle. Does he like Friday Night Dinner? Oh, my God, does he like it? I've watched every episode 5,000 times. It's like the teenage equivalent of Fireman Sam. You know, you put it on before bedtime to calm them down. Uh. He loves it. And every time I serve up some sort of roast, he'll be like, lovely bit of squirrel, Jackie. Lovely yeah. bit of squirrel.
2: Tell him I'll send him over some... Uh, Jackie will send some Crimble Crumble and I'll, I've got a oh. bit of a extra wobbly rice pudding for him, Kate. <laughs> I love it. Um, and last
3: night... I finished. It's a sin. I feel so
2: privileged to have been a part of that because it, I think it's it's a TV, it's a t- television event. It's, it's it really quite extraordinary.
3: Is. Stunning. Stunning storytelling. Heartbreaking. Honest. It so held up a mirror to the time I remembered, not the time that was reported. Does that make sense?
2: Totally. I, Russell sent me the scripts Early Doors, um, and I was doing a play at the time, so I, I was crazy. I was getting off stage at 11 I was getting into a taxi driving through the night up to Manchester and then getting on set but when I read those scripts because I remember those times you know we're of an age and you know I remember being a student I remember I remember you know being a drama student having a lot of gay friends I remember that absolute fear I remember the icebergs a lot of friends lost um and the absolute Mm -hmm. stigma of of a being gay and um and just of the the fear, you know, well, we had one friend that came to stay uh, who was openly gay at a, at a friend's house. We had like a weekend and we caught the parents burning all the sheets and <sighs> burying the cutlery in the garden after he left because they were so frightened. And I think Russell has captured how difficult it was. And I think for him, he wanted, a, you know, as the mothers and the fathers of those children, of those boys, die out, those stories have, have been, will be forgotten. And I think he wanted to make sure people remembered the joy as well as the pain. And I think he, he did that.
3: And actually address the fact that these were not social pariahs to be avoided at all costs. These were wonderful men and women that were out there exploring life, what switches them on, and I'm not just talking about sexually, I'm talking about everything in life, they weren't causing any harm to anyone. And the way I remember up, seeing that advert about HIV, you know, the tombstone coming up. Yeah, and the ice were. It was just, I mean, it was just the most horrific portrayal of, of what was reported as, like, the gay plague, which, of course, it isn't and never was. I, I'm really, really pleased that, that A, the cast... Was as incredible as it was, and the writing as strong as it was. But it's been given that kind of massive push by Channel Four, who always seem to come through and be able to tell important stories.
2: Yeah, and I, I think I think originally he had pitched that to to the BBC, and I and I and I think Channel Four have done such a brilliant job because they let him write what he wanted to write. And I think the other thing that he wanted to show was there was so much shame around being gay. And so in the psychology, it was like, here's a plague has come along that is dirty and dangerous. And it sort of tapped into everybody's shame and fear of their own sexuality. And so they were treated like there was so much cruelty in oh. the in the 80s and early 90s about around it. And that's, what's, that's what I think he's, you know, it's a brilliant series. And the feedback, even for me, has been phenomenal. People wanting to talk about their memories and how they feel about it. Because
3: I remember, you know, I didn't bat an eyelid at the fact that I had gay friends growing up and they'd come over for dinner or tea or whatever you called it back then. My mum and dad didn't it didn't matter a fig to them, but it did elsewhere. I knew that there was chatter around. Have you seen Kate? She's got, got a couple of gay friends. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. it was a big deal to be gay. In, unless you carry prejudice, you don't see it until you take it on. And this, this feeds into so much of what your podcast represents as well, which is brilliant, by the way, Trace. And I know it was a complete passion project. And please do listen to it. Trolled is, it features incredible people like Gary Lineker, who I think has been really quite brave in terms of never bowing to the battering that he gets on social media. How, to, why did you feel that was an important story to tell the the other side of, of being trolled and speaking up?
2: Um, I, you know, I come from a family of Holocaust survivors and i come from a family where the holocaust was always you know i was taken at the age of four to the holocaust museum and it was far too young to process it but something in me knew that this was what had happened to our family and it was because they were jewish and seeing mounds of sort of children's hair and shoes and you know and these images have always stayed with me and i I always i had one surviving great uncle um, who had survived the concentration camps and he lived in paris and i always remember trying to talk to him and saying how did it happen and he said because Basically, good people looked away. People looked away. And I always swore that I would never be one of those people. So um, I started to see a rise of uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish hatred, amongst other things, but mainly anti-Jewish hatred, a lot of bullying in the Labour Party, which was my party, Mm -hmm. the party of my my great-grandparents and grandparents. They helped form it. And all this stuff about all those Nazi and anti-Semitic tropes about Jews and Jews controlling the media and rich Jews and a cabal and the Rothschilds. I remember Glastonbury having huge posters up uh, talking about the, the curse of the Rothschilds. And the, So all of this stuff was knocking around on the left and nobody was speaking up. And the bullying against Luciana Berger, who was our first guest, as a Jewish female MP. And the leadership at that time did nothing to protect her. And I started to see amongst the left, because the leadership didn't crack down hard enough on it, a lot of anti-Jewish tropes, a lot of really nasty that the far right normally use in the left. And then Tom Watson came in, and he just said, I'm really horrified by this. And then the whole thing blew up. It went all viral. It was, and and suddenly um, this topic of conversation as to how casual anti-Semitism was allowed to go unchecked as if somehow it didn't matter, became a big hot topic. And then Rachel Riley and Francis Barber and David Badil and uh, Al Murray and people like yourself and Sue Perkins, people really could see it and started to speak out. But the trolling, the more, particularly with with women, they try and shut us up because they think we want to be liked and they think they can Mm. intimidate Mm. us. And I think women are very strong and actually the more they smeared, lied, said terrible things about us that went viral, organised hate, Um, having pile-ons all the time, the more we wouldn't go away. And it interested me about why I could keep going. And then I looked at other people on social media who had also um, been trolled, and I wanted to know why they were able to stand up to the bullying. And I suppose the podcast became about talking to people about why they were brave and why they were able to stand by their beliefs. People like Deborah Meaden, who really put her neck on the line about um, mm-hmm. Brexit and got trolled. Um, Luciana, Gar- uh, Gar- uh, Gary Lineker talking about immigration. And so it became more of a, an interview about how, they, how it, life had formed them to be able to be brave enough to stand up, I guess we ended up having really big questions asked in some very high places. There was a um, a grime artist called Wiley. I don't know if you were aware of the Wiley debacle. I wanted to talk to you about Wiley because
3: what you did was absolutely right. You can't write rules and then they only apply to some people some of the time. A rule's a rule, right? That's democracy. We are governed by a set of rules that we all agree are the right way to, to go. So why is... Why is Wiley not held accountable in the same way that other artists had been?
1: Exactly. Speaking and out also, other-
2: social media have, have guidelines, and their guidelines are, you know, you can't put a picture of a breastfeeding woman on Instagram because it's deemed offensive, but Wiley yeah. went on a anti-Jewish a rampage, and, I mean, I've never seen anything like it, and they let him do that just video after video after video and nobody stopped him because they didn't want to um, you know it was like well freedom of speech well hang on a minute you're giving him a megaphone you won't give a megaphone to a woman who wants to post a picture of a breastfeeding child because you said that's offensive because we did the stand up to stand up to anti-semitism no safe space for hate no safe space for Jew hate he was banned off all those platforms and I think it is it's um, served as a I think social media companies have had to start to take responsibility about what, who they give a megaphone to, to.
3: You know, listen, a lot of us are told, keep it nice on social media. You don't want to rock the boat. You might not get employed. It will affect your employment chances. I, I've, been, I've been advised of this over the years. I will never go looking for a fight, but I will always support a victim if I can.
2: I do think that social, that activi- you know, like activists are made, that they're, they're sort of almost born because, uh, you know, as an actress who relies on employment, I did a brave thing. I had so many people writing to me behind the scenes going, oh, my God, you're so brave. I believe in everything you're saying, but I'm too scared to say it. Or will you? Say-? And there was something in me that just thought, you know what, this is a line that I will not, that, that it's, it's unacceptable. I'm prepared to throw my career to the wall for this because I believe so strongly in it. And I was so worried that labor, my home, had turned into a place where so many Jewish people and women, there was a lot of misogynistic bullying that was going on under that leadership, did not feel comfortable. And we were gaslit constantly. It's not true. It's a lie. You're lying. This is all a lie. I don't know about you. I was always told when a minority tells you that they feel oppressed or they feel uncomfortable or a woman tells you that you don't turn around and go, oh, you're making that up for political. You listen. But there are amazing people out there and amazing allies, and it's actually done me. It's made me who I am today, braver, stronger, wiser, more loving of myself, more loving of other people. And I feel I've got, as for all the hatred, an enormous sense of allyship from our industry and beyond. So thank you.
3: You collected an army of
2: like-minded people. Yes, courage calls to courage everywhere. It
3: does, and you put people like Wiley in their place.
2: What's the point of having a public profile if you can't use it for positivity? And I know a lot of people, oh, you're just an actress, who cares? Or you're just an actor, or you're just a me-. If you have a... If you have a voice and it can be heard, and I thank Rachel Riley every day because she had a massive social media platform and she so didn't need to, but she really came out and has been hammered like she and I, and I just admire her so much for doing that.
3: Tell me about you and Rachel, because you you didn't know each other in real life, you met through
2: this, is that right? She'd seen what I'd been writing, I think I was one of the first sort of, I know David Badil and um, David Schneider and Al Murray had started to say that this was wrong, and I think, and Frances Barber, and then I think I was the first woman, Jewish actress, first actress and Jewish actress and woman to do it, and the abuse was beyond belief. And then um, she went on to Auschwitz to uh, a a visit for the living. They call it the March of the Living. And she texted me when she got back, got my number and said, I've just been to Auschwitz and I put a stone on the graves there for you. I was thinking about you all the time. And um, it really moved her. And she's Jewish. She, She wasn't brought up Jewish, but it really touched her this trip. And then she just kept backing me up on, on social media. And because they, she backed me up and saying, you know, this is wrong. You can't talk about rich Jews controlling everything. You can't talk about the Rothschilds. You can't keep, you know, equating. Every time somebody Jewish speaks out, you can't keep asking them about Israel. It's not their country. You know, it's like every time somebody Asian, you know, Muslim talks, you know, Tom Adel Ray comes on the TV. Do you ring him up and go, yeah, but what about ISIS? What about, you know, you can't <laughs> casual anti-Semitism is not a thing. And it shouldn't be accepted because it's seen as punching up. And we fought, we became kind of sisters through fire because the abuse that she got and I got. I mean, the number of court cases that have had to happen because we were told by hundreds of thousands of Corbinites that we were paedophiles, grooming paedophiles, tax evaders. I mean, the weirdest one I got was by quite a few of them is that I was anti Corbin. Because I was a tax-evading Zayya Rothschild whore who had a castle in the Dodoin where I hid my tax-evading money. I don't even have—I've never even been to the Dodoin. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you're nuts, absolutely nuts. But we've become like huge like proper sisters. If you're not prepared to say it in real life to somebody's face, why should you be able to hide behind an anonymous account and have a have a, a pile-on group and it, you know, and people who should have known better like barristers and journalists and um, uh, counsellors were getting pulled into terrible lying and defaming slurs. But suffice to say, I do think that anyone on social media shouldn't be allowed to hide behind an anonymous profile if they're going to throw hate and abuse. I just... I just don't think it's acceptable. You know, back in the day when I was, you know, um, I think David Baddiel and Omija Lily put me, and, and David Schneider got me on Twitter when I was doing a film called The Infidel. They said, you're gonna like this, it's so great. And it was like, oh, what is it? They were like, really for downtime. And it was, you remember back in the day, Twitter was like this gorgeous party of wonderful, funny people. And you found yourself watching telly and tweeting, I don't know, Mia Farrow or you get up with anybody. It was just, it was just funny. And if I got the odd dick pic, or if I, you know, I never, in all those years, had any problems whatsoever. And if you got somebody sending you pictures of their dick, you just blocked and moved on. People have said to me, "Why do you stay on there?" And I tell you why. It takes people like you and I and other people to shatter through echo chambers to fight and say, "No, absolutely, COVID is a thing. <laughs> Anti-vaxing is nonsense. David I isn't right." Hitler um, <laughs> wasn't a good man. And talking about Rothschilds and rich Jews controlling the media and filthy rich Jewish sire whores is, is not acceptable. Drilling into that kind of bravery, that
3: resilience, that, that is so evident in your podcast, my first question to you is, at what other times in your life, how did you get to that point yourself? How did you learn to stand up? And be counted. What were the lessons that life taught you that got you there?
2: Well, I think, like I say, going into um, the Holocaust Museum and not really being told what I was going to see, but sort of knowing that it had something to do with my identity, and being—I think—it sent me on a lifelong quest to understand how people could do that to other people and how people could stand by and allow othering get to the point where you can basically torture, gas, exterminate people for their faith. You know, one minute somebody's your banker, your doctor, your dentist, your hairdresser, and the next minute they're being dragged out of their house and taken to a concentration camp across the whole of Europe and nobody did anything. So I think that made me think, if I'm ever in that position, I will never not speak out. And I think... um, I think I think being an actress I and I'm reclaiming that word by the way because Dorothy Parker always said scratch an actor and you get an actress so in my opinion all all performers are actresses so I'm totally <laughs> reclaiming actress um I think being an actress when you get to a certain age you're a survivor because it's particularly when we were doing it early in the day I mean the sexism the rudeness the you know the the stuff you had to put up with you needed the skin of a rhino. In fact, Lorraine Kelly's been a great ally of mine, and we always laugh saying if you've managed to be into, in the media as a woman from your twenties onwards and you're still there, you're like Teflon. Nothing sticks because you've
3: toughened up. You don't you don't walk around with a, with a thick skin. It's almost a husk. I'm literally, I'm half woman, half coconut.
2: Um, yeah, yeah, we're tough. I mean, you know, it's almost like we know who we are. We know who we are. We've been through it. We've seen the worst and the best of times. Can you remember your first experience of acquiring resilience? Yes. I think my when I was, I was spent a lot of time with my grandpa, my grandmother was my absolute, like, I spent all my time with her and she dropped dead in her 50s. And I remember my dad coming, having to come and tell me at the age of about five. and a half five that she died and this feeling of like this big hole in my tummy opening up because she was like the absolute love of my life and Mm -hmm. feeling like how's the world ever going to be safe again so that that's not a jolly story either but um no but child, yeah that childhood feeling of like I've lost something and it's never the realization that something you love is never coming back
3: and never will yeah it's that you know the word bereft yeah in that context, it's absolutely the right word. It's that, that sense of being bereft without something, lost forever. Mm. That's, and it's a hard lesson to learn as a kid, isn't
2: it? Oh, I'm very young. And I, I think a lot of work needs to be done with children. I think there's a wonderful charity called Grief Encounter. I think when children are young and they lose somebody, it's a lifelong wound. It's a lifelong wound. So resilience is something we've acquired through life.
3: I'm looking at my son hoping he never has to grow his coconut skin, but he's going to have to. How are you with watching Anushka acquire life's knocks and bruises?
2: Well, we'll do anything for our kids never to feel any pain, wouldn't we? I mean, and you know what it's like when you've got that one child as well and you just, they are your world and you love them and you have a connection that is so strong. Uh, mm. She and I are so connected. Um yeah, I think I think um a lot you know, nobody gives you the handbook for being a parent. I never even held a baby till I took her home. I'd never changed a nappy, I would just you know, so it was all learning on the spot. But I think that early early doors, I've try I try to protect her from any pain. And actually a little bit of pain is good because you do build up resilience. And when you come across people who aren't nice to you or maybe bullying or Um, You know, you end up wanting to be friends with the people that you think are cool, but they're actually really toxic for you. I think these are all good life lessons to learn early doors, which is people who are bullies do it because they're unhappy. And um, don't if people don't make you feel good about yourself, don't be friends with them. Only really try and surround yourself by people who celebrate and love you and that can respect and accept you. But most importantly, you got to do all those things for yourself. Because until you love yourself, no you, nobody else is love is ever going to be able to penetrate.
3: But she's I doing all right. Of- yeah, I, I just want, I want for our kids to have the same, you know, that that kind of like when we we all run into each other, we see each other, us group of fabulous women uh, that are lucky enough to call friends, that excitement, that big kind of open arms, that, ah, brilliant. And I just said to Ben, I just want you to have like 20 of those. In your corner, and everything else in life is okay because yeah. you've got your people. Yeah,
2: you just need to find your people, and sometimes it takes years to find your people. You know, people think you've got to find your people at school. I never found my people at school. I feel I've—you find your people as you go along. Some people don't find their people till they're fifty.
3: That's what I got from *It's a Sin*. Was they found their people at the right time? I know it's a work of fiction, but I loved how—and it was all really, based on really, his really life.
2: It did exist, the King yeah. Palace
3: the pink palace was a real life place and that was his real life it was a brilliant example of you can go through the most the most grotesque experiences in life but if you've got your people they will smooth the edges of that
2: what i got from watching it's a sin and, and i've seen it i saw it i'd seen it originally when it was first done and then i saw it again on television and it just it's, it devastated me it really did it, it profoundly affected me i think also because of the reactions yeah. and Um, But it it really, really broke me in some ways. It's it's hung over me. But what I think that people loved about it as well was that sense of community of the Pink Palace, that sense of a group of friends that will Mm -hmm. love and accept and cherish each other. And exactly that, that's, that's your safe world against Mm. a very harsh outside world that may not Mm. always be accepting. And actually, you only need to find one or two people who are your people. But as long as you found your person who gets you on a real connective soul level and sees you for who you are and can accept and love you, that's all you really need.
3: I think lockdown, has, I mean, by virtue of the names, kept us all very much locked in our homes. But what about day-to-day life? Certainly in lockdown,
2: bores the arse off of you. What's the stuff that just you find inane? I, I, I can't get... I just... I don't even know where to start with this. You know, I'm, I'm a high-up-chain <laughs> person. I don't think I've ever spent as long in this house. I don't think as a family we've ever spent as long together. I work constantly. i uh, my life, you know, uh, what bores me? I, you know, at the beginning, it was like the first lockdown was like, oh, this is lovely. Baking, sports, family time, games, creativity. Then the second lockdown, I worked all the way through. So it didn't feel like a lockdown um, other than with safety measures. And this lockdown, I think it's the not knowing it's when it's going to end. Everything bores the bloody pants off me, Kate. Absolutely everything. Yeah.
3: I think going into the professions that you've you've chosen and I've chosen, the idea of every day being the same is everything I've tried to flee from all my life. Exactly,
2: exactly. And then
3: suddenly it's like I wake up, I don't know what day it is. All I'm doing is ticking off days to get closer to spring so that we get closer to getting out. I've never wanted to wish my life away and I find that a really difficult place to be
2: you've hit the nail on the head it's actually ticking the days off, feeling relief that you might get closer to the end game and you're, yeah. that's the bit that I'm hating is the fact that I'm not staying in the moment but normally there's something to look forward look on the one hand there's it's nothing to, like you know thank god we're not you know and I, I think for a lot of people must be so stressed and I feel a lot of I feel the pain, the sort of collective pain, you know, of the of the world, having a terrible time. But personally, it's exactly that. There's nothing to break it up. There's the mundanity. It's the mm. everydayness of it, and it's the it's the fact that there's nothing to do, nothing to look forward to. we I mean, have so been banned from banana bread. I've been banned from any more um, uh, chickens and roasts. I've been banned from any desserts. Um, what won't you miss about lockdown? Oh, uh, well, okay. Uh, what won't I miss? The mundanity, the everydayness, the um, seeing friends, going out.
3: Anything at all you'd hang on to yes. from
2: lockdown? Yes, actually, there, there is. <laughs> I like the slowness of the pace. Mm-hmm. I like the feeling of not being... That things are out of my control, therefore I don't have to be driven there's a kind of yeah. cortisol adrenaline thing that comes with I'm always writing and doing a voiceover and doing a play and doing a radio play and filming and fitting it all in and I can't say no to anything. And oh my God, brain, mother of the year. So the quietness is actually very nice and the stillness and the, and the sleeping and the watching television and us all being together. That, I'll mi- I, I will miss that. That I really do yeah. like. And I like everything having been funneled down to working out who you really like and who you really want to see. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a, yeah, that's true. a dress book of thousands and you sort of like, find out who you really need and want to see, which I think, and I cannot wait to oh. entertain and have people to my house and cook. There's too many people flouting the rules for my liking. I, I still think this anti-vaxxing QAnon nonsense that people are, you know, even around here, people are having fights and spitting at people in shops because they don't want to wear their masks. And it's, it's disgusting. You know, we have, we are a community. We have to look after each other.
3: And why has your definition of success changed across your adult life?
2: I, I was always quite um, realistic because I, I, I came from a background where my dad always said, if you if you insist on being an actress, Tracy, you're going to spend the rest of your life in a bedsit with a cat for company. Are you happy to accept that? And every day that that hasn't happened to me, I feel like I'm winning a life and a success. <laughs> so I had very low expectations of what success was. I just wanted to work and work and work. So I never thought, oh, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be there, I'm going to own this, I'm going to own that. I was. I had a very realistic um, wide peripheral vision. I just always wanted to work, and I always wanted to be able to earn my own money. I think at one point I thought, "Oh, uh, being famous is a sign of success." And when I was in EastEnders, I guess that was a level of fame. You know, when seventeen million people have watched you murder Dirty Den and burying him under the Queen Vic, and I had paparazzi following me everywhere, and it was at the height of that kind of tabloid interest. And I guess that was a level of fame. And when I when I achieved that, actually, it was the unhappiest I'd ever been, and it made me realise that that fame wasn't the answer, and that the most famous people, a listers that I knew, were some of the unhappiest. So I think I always had a very realistic view of what success was. She says, boringly. No, it's not. It's 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 really not a boring
3: response because I think sometimes we measure success almost like we measure um, distance with a ruler. And one person's measurement of success is entirely different to somebody else's, and it's allowed to change and I think we we kind of we forget that sometimes and we forget that you're allowed to change your mind about what success means to you, what happiness looks like,
2: yeah, and oh God, that's we, what, so true. I think also always looking, you know, people who are always looking and I think as women, we're trained to look at other women and think, oh, they're thinner, they're prettier, they're more successful. Why have Mm -hmm. they got that? And I haven't got that. What's their relationship? You never know. I really there were three things that I remember being told. One actor, I think it was Jeffrey Whitehead, said to me, you get the career you can handle. And I truly believe that. I remember reading somewhere, I think it was an Osho Zen thing that said the bamboo and the oak. Should never compare to each other. Each one is valid and should be there. Who's to say one is better or not? And mm. as my grandmother always used to say, if everybody put their problems on the table, you take yours home. And you never know what go what goes on in here. And you never know so um what goes on in other people's lives and what walking in their shoes is like. So our success is this sounds so wanky, but I really believe is is just staying. Sane, healthy, whole, and accepting yourself and and enjoying your work and enjoying your life, but not always compare and contrast, wishing you were somewhere else, wishing you could be somewhere else. Accept, just accept where you are and accept where you're at. Have goals and dreams, but you're not a total failure if those things haven't happened.
3: Or you're not a total failure if you decide to take a left turn instead of the right oh, turn God. that you
0: planned.
2: And sometimes That's if you okay get forced too. to back down the drive... That's not a failure either. You, you no, just, it's just the journey of life because we all end up in yeah. a box at the end to make it as pleasurable as you bloody can.
3: It's interesting, though, isn't it, that you, what you were using there as the sort of measurement of success was fame, biggest show, biggest audience on the telly, because you'd probably – even subconsciously absorbed the fact that that defines success. That's what success looked like. But it wasn't success for you. It was lonely and it was unhappy.
2: It was what other people, weirdly, you know, I'd, I'd worked for so many years. You know, for me, it was just about the working, you know, coming out of the RSC and I'd done lots of comedy. I'd done lots of television. And then, you know, I got nominated as best newcomer and I'd been acting for like 12 and a half years. I remember at the National Television <laughs> Awards. And it was like, oh, so I, I was up against a, a 10-year-old boy. And I sort of... um. From Corrie, <laughs> and I, and I, you know it was huge. I walked in the red car. You know this was a level of 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 fame, I guess, that was extra. You know it was an extraordinary level of fame for somebody that had been a good jobbing actress for years. Yeah. Um, you know, and when you have your own pap that follows you around constantly, and you know you're on the covers of magazines, and other people kept telling me how amazing and successful and famous I was but i didn't feel i didn't feel that i had no life i was doing 28 scenes a day on a sh- on a show i was working five days a week i literally had got married and never seen rob at all the chances of having a baby was probably min- i just worked and worked and worked and the fame didn't mean anything i, I don't know how to explain it to you it sounds really ungrateful but you know, I was as happy doing a play above the Fimbra Arms that I loved, or a radio play that fed my soul. Obviously, what do they? What do they say? One for the meal, one for the real. So you, you know, things yeah. need to pay money, but you also want to have one for the real, which feeds your soul. People who want to be famous, I think, so there's a lot of ho- there's a lot of emotional holes that need filling. I think you've got to find other yeah. ways of. You know, I remember my my friend was very close to Amy Winehouse, and that level of fame was. You know the more famous she got the sicker and iller she got and you can see the unhappiness that comes i think with huge fame because first of all there's only one way to go and second of all you, you end up do. defining yourself through it i am so, I, i'm so you know I, I feel very blessed that i've been able to do friday night dinner and toast of london and do a bit of the national theater and the RSC and write my plays because it's interested me and pay my way um that to me was, that to me is success. is an interesting, yeah. eclectic, I've worked with some amazing people. I'm always learning. You know, I did fitter On The Roof. I've never done a musical. I did Stepping Out With Tam. I've never yeah. learned to dance. So you can teach an old dog and that'll be me. New tricks. And I'm learning all the time.
3: We're here, sister. Yeah. I completely get that.
2: People often ask when I'm being interviewed, like, what's
3: your favourite job? Fully expecting me to talk about the shows with the biggest audiences. For me, my favourite job ever has been reporting travel for the BBC oh, I, love that. I mean right I mean literally being paid to go and tell people about the world as you find it what a, that and, and you can almost hear their disappointment when I say that equally they say what's your favorite body part and I always say the same and they never print the answer which is my brain
2: yeah um, that's so good
3: because it's really i can't bear this obsession with how you look is you know it, 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 a good looking person does not equal a more valid person
2: well this it's looks just... but this youth and looks obsession is 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 getting it's but, that's an illness in itself as well i actually violently
3: think, unhealthy i think yeah. the next
2: generation are much better at it you know i think so you know i remember I the so. and her little friends doing an impression of their mums that like, oh literally hearing them going at the age of four you lost weight you look thin and i think they're mm. more aware of the craziness of our generation that was all about the looks i hope anyway because looks fade people of our generation who have only ridden on their looks it's a very distressing place to get to when suddenly yeah. your looks isn't your cachet you you you've got to develop as a person and and don't you also find that some of the most charismatic and attractive and sexy gorgeous people it's through their personality as well because you can look bloody great on an instagram post meet you in real life and it's like oh, like like a sort oh. of chimera like who what, what? yeah um darling Thank you so
3: much for talking uh, to me today because I've loved having you on. What I would like people to do, is it's still on iPlayer? I'd like to pe- drive people over to listen to your Radio 4. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Yes, definitely. It's, uh, it's called That Dinner of 67. It's about the making of the that groundbreaking film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was about interracial marriage and Sidney Poitier and Catherine Hepburn. And it's, um, it's, on, it's on BBC iPlayer, BBC Sounds, um and it's called that dinner of 67 it's got Kenneth Branagh Adrian Lester Daisy Ridley and myself in it and David Morrissey that sounds like the lineup of a blockbuster movie that would receive
3: a nationwide cinema release how the hell did you get them on board I can't believe it I yeah
2: because I've written four radio plays and I've had I've done I've they've done really well I've had a lovely cast every time but this time I was in lockdown and I finished it off and I pitched it and written it before the murder of George Floyd and it just sort of hit uh, hit the zeitgeist and I sent it to the people I'd written the parts for never thinking I'd get them. Ken as Spencer Tracy, David Morrissey as Larry Kramer the director, um, Daisy Ridley as young Catherine Houghton um, and Adrian Esther as Sidney Poitier and I thought oh well we'll give it a pop so I sent it to David Morrissey first because I knew him and he read it and came back and went I love it I'm in absolute years so I thought oh I love David he's out I'm filming Britannia but I'm going to take Britannica Britannia Britannia and I'm going to take the time out to do it and then I got I'd worked with Ken I hadn't seen him for years but I sent it to him and he also got back within 24 hours and said Spencer Trace is my absolute hero I love this play it's beautifully written yes I'll do it similarly with Daisy Ridley and then Adrian as well Adrian Lester so it was it was just incredible and because of lockdown they were all available and it was just in that window when you were allowed into a studio. So Ken, David, myself, and Adrian were allowed to go into the studio and record. And Daisy did it remotely with Matt Addis, who was playing. Wow. So it was a, it was pretty amazing. And then it's had lots of good publicity.
3: I, I really want people to understand that you are, you know, that you've spent time not only writing this but getting that cast together. And you know, if that was if that dropped on Netflix tomorrow, millions would gather to watch it. So oh. please, in your millions, gather to listen. Just, <laughs> just lend it in your ears, if not your eyes. And please, can you try to get it made? Oh, I love to. I know
2: we're talking about. It's so hard to get anything bloody made, but yeah, because I've got four of these. I did one about the making of the Graduate, and I did one about Rock Hudson and AIDS and coming out. You know, showing the world that he had AIDS on on Doris Day's pet show, which was the weirdest thing. And then I did, I'm, wasn't it? That's so brilliant. I mean, he so didn't need to out himself, and yet he went on her stupid pet show program on the Christian uh, Network Channel for no reason other than, and the world's press were there, and he stepped off the coach. He was sixty nine pounds, covered in sarcomas, and the world went, oh, "What's the matter with him?" And I wrote the my radio play was about that. That experience, very bitters, and then Liz Taylor setting up the AIDS movement. So yeah, I love my radio. I love writing radio plays.
3: But you find these brilliant stories that are truly important, but really accessible because of the showbiz that sits around them. But fundamentally, at the heart of them is something that is, it's a it's a story that is poignant and that deserves you know to be on one of life's bookshelves. That that it should be sat in people's kind of you know library in their head, as important because. we all think of liz taylor for example as oh yeah she got married loads of times no she was an incredible campaigner for for aids and hiv and she probably alongside elton john has done more than most to to, to bring clarity and conversation to the illnesses that that, that that people were so i mean you have to remember only watching it's a sin brings it back how fearful people were and she went there.
2: She she went there. She she was campaigning for a long time. And before Rock Hudson came out, literally the quote was, It's just drug addicts and weirdos and fags. Those are the only people that get it. And in the play that I I I wrote, I had her sort of saying to him, If you're gonna do this, Rock, you've got to make it count because you're gonna give a face to AIDS. And in the my play, Doris is pushing him back every time he tried to come out in the closet. But she did the latter, the last 20, 30 years of her life, she literally started the aids movement she was incredible she got ronald reagan on board who was she was an incredible woman she saved millions of lives she did and that's that that's that's something that is often not yeah
3: not uh, sitting at the top of her story it's a footnote and it deserves to be so much more so
2: true she was so much more than just a pretty face. Who had lots of husbands.
3: Keep telling those stories. Oh, well, you talented, you talented beast. And please go over and listen to Tracy's work on iPlayer. Um, they, it's it's a it's a wonderful thing. And if you think, oh, radio plays aren't for me, if you're listening to a podcast you're listening to a radio play. It's like the best film
2: that goes on in your head. Every day, Radio 4 has a different play. I'm telling you, it is the jewel in the BBC's crown because in this day and age, you can be sitting in the kitchen or cooking or driving in the car and you just put it on and you are literally... Trans- it's a it's a film in your head via your ears. It's the best. It
3: really is. And I really hope that podcast encourages... The creation of more audio drama because it's it is so true
2: true. i know and i'm um, and um, i've just finished filming a thing called ridley road again for bbc which is a big four-part drama so that will be coming out soon so i hope that people will enjoy that too
3: and friday night dinner is doing a 10th anniversary yeah is that right
2: yes, yes. Oh, but it, well it's not doing a series i think they're doing um they're doing a kind of retrospective so they've got the they've got the core cast together and they've got other people who love it to come on and talk about it i think it'll be like a celebratory program
3: are you, are you in?
2: Yeah. I mean, she was only meant to be in one episode, but they just kept bringing her back. I was so happy. Well, it's, I've loved having you on. Thank
3: you, thank you, thank you. Uh, go download BBC Sounds. Go listen to the fine penmanship of Tracy Ann Oberman. You can also enjoy her in Code 404, which is coming back, Ridley Road on the BBC, and Friday Night Dinner on Netflix. Thank you, darling. Thank you, thank you. Hi, my love. Thank you. you. My huge thanks to Tracy Ann Oberman and to you, for listening wherever you're consuming this show if you're on your daily walk if you're pottering around the house If you're in your car, driving off to work, just really nice to have your company at a time when we're craving company more than ever. As always, the show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK. And editing and co-production comes courtesy of Callum Goddard Mucklow. Andy Bell, as always, has provided our music and our beats. You can catch all of his work on iTunes and Spotify with Oasis and Ride and as a solo artist. We'll be back next week. Until then, do as we do and please drink responsibly. But more than that, just take great care of yourselves. Thanks for listening.